0: The biggest, hardest lesson of all of this so far for me is loneliness is a place of growth and strength. I used to think loneliness was negative, and sometimes it is, but the truth is, if you have a perspective that that's where actual growth and strength happens, it's a paradigm shift. It's really where I got real with myself.) <laughs>
1: Welcome to the Live, Lead, Last podcast. I'm James Duvall, and I'm here with my amazing, caring, and beautiful wife, who is also my co-host, Lisa.
0: Hey, guys. We want to thank you all for listening to the show today. We'd love it if you'd take time to subscribe, share, rate, and if you feel like you can, leave us a review on the podcast. It would help us get the word out about the show and help us grow the podcast.
1: So last week, we started the conversation about your journey of identity. And I want to thank you for your vulnerability. I was actually looking at information from the 2017 U.S. Census Bureau about fatherlessness in America. And did you know that more than one in four children live without a father in the home? And the National Fatherhood Initiative claims that there is a father factor in nearly all social ills facing America today. So, for those listeners who haven't had the opportunity to listen to last week's episode, which I would highly recommend you do, you grew up without a dad. You've dealt with this issue of fatherlessness and at the age of 11 you found out that the guy who was your sibling's father was not your biological father. So we ended last week talking about our experience with the ancestor DNA and finding out who your biological father was. So your story of growing up without knowing your biological father and, and really not having a father figure is an important issue.
0: Yeah fatherlessness has had a profound impact on my sense of identity and the formation of my identity. Practically, I was wrestling with whose I was, like where do I belong, and then who I was, my being, my actual identity of who I was.
1: Oh, that's good. Can you unpack that?
0: Yeah. So the journey of trying to figure out who I belonged to left me filling in the gaps and trying to connect dots and even find some dots to connect. I felt much like the little hatchling in Eastman's children's book, Are You My Mother?, Actually, this was a pretty painful book I would read to my kids. The hatchling makes this journey around asking every other kind of animal, are you my mother? And it's obvious to the readers, this silly little hatchling thinks that a dog is his mother. No, he's not your mother. The end of the story turns out beautiful, of course. The hatchling finds out his mother is a beautiful swan. This is also a really stinky part of the story for me because things don't always have a happy ending it's true. like this book.
1: Not having a sense of closure had to be hard growing up, right?
0: Actually, it was. I've done some research on this and it shows girls without dads internalize a deep sense of shame. Their core identification is a lack of self-worth. For me, this was amplified due to the secrecy and all the unknowns around who my dad was. Bottom line, it was 35 years of not knowing until, of course, our ancestry DNA. How
1: did this shape your identity as an individual?
0: I think two things come to mind for me. Um, for all girls without dads, there's a tendency to reject themselves or reject others first. Practically, I would abandon relationships before I was abandoned, mm. or I would reject myself or belittle myself or point out things bad about myself before someone had the opportunity to do it. Feedback is hard for me. and still is challenging to me because my inner critic is so intensely loud. The other thing I realized is I felt like I didn't have a voice
1: Just hit me that as you're sharing that, that's probably the reason why it took me so long to convince you to go on a date with me is because you didn't want to be rejected. And so you constantly were pushing me away.
0: Yeah. Anything good couldn't be for me.
1: Wow. So you said that you realized that you felt like you didn't have a voice. Was that just a lack of confidence in your voice or explain that a bit?
0: I'm learning how to express my needs and desires. I've had an ongoing challenge with articulating dreams for myself, my dreams, Uh, navigating this emotional work to get on the other side of this, of having a voice and expressing my desires and needs and my dreams has been a challenge and probably will at some level for a lifetime for me.
1: A wise friend of ours uh, told us that there are issues in our life that we circle numerous times kind of like being on a spiral staircase and we will circle the same issue many times, but approaching it from different levels of growth, different levels of maturity and different levels of perspective. This is probably true in, in your life. I want to talk a bit more about this idea of identity though. You've done some personal work and research on the topic of identity and identity formation. Can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, I'd love to, you know, I want to just mention that spiral staircase illustration is so life-giving to me because I couldn't understand why I can't get over, why I would constantly struggle with my identity. And it helped me know I wasn't at level one. I kept going up levels. So, yeah, it's true. There's so much information on identity and identity formation. There's a scientific perspective, and then there's the spiritual perspective. Both are weighty things. So I find it true. A good friend of mine, theologian friend, Dr. Drew Haig, always says good theology and good science always line up. So Mm. what God's Word says and, and science will always line up. There are spiritual aspects of identity, but there are also practical, tangible aspects of identity. Some things many of our listeners may take for granted, and you may take for granted also, James, not because they're selfish, but because they just didn't have to wonder. For example, our girls both have strong personalities like you. They are fierce females. Yeah, they are. Those girls... Also share your easily um, burned skin. They're both very (laughs) light and pale skin. Parker, our son, is much like me. Fun, warm, loving, and he tans well like me. We have really dark skin. Um, Addie always says, I wish I would have got your skin like Parker. (laughs) I see mannerisms in our kids that are like their aunts and uncles. They demonstrate these things, but they were never really raised around your sister or my siblings, yet they have this in them. We can see mannerisms in our kids of our extended family.
1: Yeah, it's kind of like the nature and nurture discussion, right? There's things that are innate, they're built into us, the nature part yeah. of us, but then there's things that are nurtured into us because of our context, our environment, our experiences that we have, right?
0: Yeah, and so where, as in a normal family unit where you have all biological parts of happening there, you see those dynamics, and that does give you a sense of where you belong.
1: So picking up on your story, there was a period of time where you got to meet several of your biological family members. We talked a little bit last week about your cousin Todd. So tell us about some of those experiences and some of the discoveries about you and even our kids that came from getting to know your family.
0: Yeah, I only knew half of my story, my mom's side of the story. My mom and sister, they look so much alike. I have some characteristics like them, but I knew they looked more like each other than I looked like them. When they would be in the grocery store, you could see their mom and daughter where I may not always be connected with them. So the list goes on to personality and disposition. It wasn't just physical features. I always wondered if I looked like my aunt or my dad or my grandma. Did my kids look like them or act like them? Do they have the same maybe voice tone or features of my dad's side of the family? Ancestry DNA allowed me to have a peek into that world. My amazing cousins, Todd and Patty, after connecting with them, gave me information and heirlooms and history. But they also gave me an insight to as they got to see me and see me talk and interact with them. They got to tell me about physical features that I had like my dad. They said, when you talk, Lisa, you have this little crooked thing with your mouth and it looks like the Wallace family. And I love it. And my dark skin is a lot like my dad's. He tanned really well. So that means Parker got his strong Wallace features of skin and, and possibly even Parker's stature and size yeah. is much larger than your family and or my mom's side of the family. The cool thing is, is that... My father was described as a jovial person who liked to come in and make environments feel good. And so he and I share this um, warm feature about our personalities together. These concepts all are a part of understanding whose you are, like who you belong to, what family of origin you belong to, but it also helps describe who you are. And so I had zero context of all this until I was 46 years old, or at least I only had half of it.
1: The obituary about your dad's death, I remember we were laying in bed and reading it. It says, quote, he had a gregarious nature and an abiding interest in people. He actually was not the queen of shenanigans, but the maybe the king, king of, shenanigans. of shenanigans. Isn't
0: it so cool? I think that's where I think this has come around to be a beautiful story. It's not the way I wanted it to end, but mm-hmm. there's a lot of cool things about it. But one of the coolest things I learned from my cousin Todd was my grandmother was a woman of strong faith. He shared with me, because she would be so proud of you that you're carrying on this legacy of hers. He wouldn't know it, but his words to me were life to my soul and actually to my identity. So good. Yeah, the fun fact is, is my biological grandmother, who I'm now carrying on her legacy, was who introduced my mom to the denominational church where I grew up, which is the same denomination of the college that I wanted to go to when I wanted to make this 19-year-old pivot, which is where I met you. Mm-hmm. That's where I met you. So thank you, Grandma Wallace, for helping me find James Duval.
1: Isn't that so cool, though? Your grandma, who never knew you, never knew you existed, really was the connecting dot between you and your faith.
0: Well, if you think about Live, lead, last, yeah. leave a legacy. Yeah, Her legacy connected to me because she lived her life the way she should have lived wow, her life.
1: That's powerful. Yep. That is powerful. So connecting your family uh, roots was a huge turning point for you. In 2018, though, there was another significant step on your journey to identity. And that was really the discovery of the Enneagram. We were both introduced to the Enneagram through Ian Crone's book, Road Back to You, But it was significant in your personal discovery. Can you talk a little bit about how that impacted you?
0: Yeah, the Enneagram is a unique tool that really pulled together a lot of pieces in my life that helped me give language around the things I was experiencing and felt, motivations of my actions. And honestly, it exposed some things I didn't like so much about myself and was a tool of growth for me. I am a self-preservation too, and there's a lot that goes into that. We don't have time today, but basically I'm playful, I'm helpful, I'm empathetic. I feel what other people are feeling. I can feel what's going on in a room without anyone saying a word. I have the ability to make an awkward situation not feel so awkward, actually – Addie just yesterday asked me to assist in making a car ride with a new girlfriend, not awkward. Yeah. Yes, mom, please do that thing. And I love it. Relationships are important to me. Who I know and um how much I know about them feeds into how I feel loved and love. It's really critical.
1: So when you found out that you were a two, there was so much that started making sense, obviously. But you also mentioned that there's some things you didn't like. So what were the things the Enneagram exposed in your life that bothered you?
0: Well, as a two, I feel loved when I'm helpful. When others find me helpful, I feel loved. If I can predict what someone needs and I can meet that need, I feel loved. My ability to do or to perform or care for others is so critical, and sometimes it's too critical. My worth can be connected to how indispensable I am. Ouch. This is just so painful to hear about myself. This really plays hand in hand with my identity. I struggle with being because I'm so busy doing. I can be more interested in others and negate myself. This is why I would have a hard time knowing what my dreams are or what my desires are because I'm too busy fulfilling what everyone else wants, whether they're asking for it or not. Caring for myself feels like I'm being self-absorbed or selfish. If I'm not recognized, though, when I'm helpful or if I'm not appreciated appropriately, according to my own standards that you may or may not know about, verbally or with action, my value is diminished and my self-worth and self-esteem would take a hit. And this is where it doesn't serve me well at all. So you can see how this leads me to a train wreck. My motivation of helping has got to be evaluated. I have to know when and how to use my superpower, when it's actually driving me to a good place or a broken place. It really takes a lot of practice for me and a lot of hard work.
1: So sometimes your superpower can actually become your kryptonite.
0: Absolutely. It can totally take me out. And actually people may leverage it because it's a superpower of mine and I would let them leverage it past a place that I should.
1: So as you learn more about the Enneagram, you decided to take a big step and get certified as an Enneagram coach. Can you tell us about that process and the tool that you use for coaching individuals?
0: Well, as a two, stepping out and doing something like this for myself was pretty difficult. Thankfully, I married an eight who is all about action. They have a lot of energy. They get things done and take next steps quickly. I expressed an interest In this, and there you go. I was signed up for the best Enneagram assessment tool out there, Integrative 9. It's a comprehensive tool for coaching in the area of self-awareness and growth. It really was a great experience for me to go through that, and it's an opportunity for me to help people help themselves.
1: Yeah, so the Enneagram tool actually is known as the most accurate Enneagram tool, and it's used for personal growth and development, so you've had the opportunity to coach some individuals and also work with teams with that tool, right?
0: Yes, and I want to continue growing in that.
1: So there's some controversy about the Enneagram, especially in some evangelical church circles. So what would you say to people who challenge the validity of using the Enneagram for personal growth?
0: Well, to be factual, Enneagram, as it is right now, compared to Myers-Briggs, isn't scientifically founded MBTI is a psychological test and has rich research surrounding it. The origins of Enneagram are connected to Sufi, uh, mystic, and Catholicism. There's a lot of different things that blend into where the Enneagram comes from, but that's basically the short of it. So, to my evangelical friends, I would say Enneagram is a tool. God's Word, the Bible, is supreme over any tool. That's good. The power of the Holy Spirit in one's life trumps any personality test. Enneagram, Myers-Briggs, any disc. disc, you name it. God's word and his spirit in you is, is stronger and more powerful than that. And this is what I love to tell my evangelical friends. If you know more about Myers-Briggs Enneagram than you know about God's word, you probably have a bigger issue than the Enneagram. <laughs> so, But the symbol of the Enneagram is a little freaky and sketchy, but it, it all shakes down. It's, it's okay.
1: I know the Enneagram has been very helpful for each of us individually, but also as an awareness tool for our marriage. Can you share some of the ways that you think knowing our Enneagram numbers has helped in our marriage harmony?
0: Well, it has taken things out of being so personal for me. My sensitivity is high. I'm high empathy. And well, let's say you have empathy, but it isn't easily accessed. (laughs) Uh, So when I learned this about you, it helped me extend grace to you. I could see any effort in this area was a lot of work for you. You know, when you're on an airplane and the directions are given for parents to put on their mask before putting on the mask for their child, it would take a lot for me to put on an air mask for myself before helping others. For you, James, you may not have completely understood this about me, but you can and do appreciate my tendencies to kind of go back there. That's true. Your strengths as an eight are maximized in our marriage. You are decisive, straightforward, and you have the ability to get to a solution quickly. So why work harder when I can work smarter in marriage, parenting and leadership. You are a great coach for me. I have to say all twos in the world need an eight in their life. And I might add all eights need a two in their life.
1: That's true. And I think the fact that you are so good with people and I'm, good with people not as natural with relational harmony as you are you actually accentuate that in me so i'm much better when you're on my side talking to people than i am as a as an eight i get to the bottom line cut to the chase but you help things feel warmer and more appropriate so it's it's a great team working together it's a
0: win-win for sure
1: so your journey is not complete you're constantly working on yourself and on your identity I want to talk about some of the lessons that you've learned through your journey. One of the things that you teach is that distorted truths are the most dangerous of all falsehoods. Distortion, the truth, is actually worse than a lie because it has a thread of truth weaved in.
0: Because I gave power to distorted truths and lies in my life, it kept me from discovering my true identity. It was hard for me to sort out what was true and what was truth.
1: So... Let me unpack that idea a little bit. What's true and what's truth? Because sometimes our feelings are true, but oftentimes they're not based on a foundational truth. truth. Right. Correct. Yeah. So we were actually having this conversation with a young couple, and they were sharing there are times that she feels a certain way when her husband acts a certain way. I was able to remind her that. The truth is that regardless of the situation, she knows the truth that her husband loves her and they have a strong foundation in their marriage. And so our feelings can sometimes be deceptive if we base everything on what's true in the moment instead of a foundation of the truth.
0: Correct. It was true. His behavior in that moment wasn't the best. The truth that their marriage was falling apart was not true. That's right. He did love her. That's the truth. But in that moment, it was true. He wasn't sensitive.
1: So, you share you grew up believing two distorted truths and one lie. I want to talk about those briefly because I think they'll be really helpful for many of our listeners who may struggle with identity. So, what was the first distorted truth?
0: I was unexpected and unplanned. Wow. That was a distorted truth. This had such power over me. As a woman of faith, I know I may have been unexpected by my parents, but I wasn't unexpected by God. Mm. I may have been unplanned by them, but there was a plan and purpose for my life.
1: And I think that's a distorted truth that so many people struggle with. Are they planned or on the accident? Do they do they have a purpose? Is there intention for their life? And for you to grow up really with fatherlessness, with that half-truth, that distorted truth, that in the physical, your mom and your biological dad may not have planned it, but God all along had purpose and plans your life
0: correct and if you believe the lie I would behave like the lie is truth which would keep me in a cycle of not understanding who I was
1: that's good so what was the second distorted truth
0: having a heavenly father is enough so many well-meaning Christians bless your hearts would give me this hogwash (laughs) so that's country for that's a lie I'm sorry, a heavenly father does not attend sporting events. He does not interrogate my first boyfriend. He doesn't tell bad dad jokes and embarrass (laughs) me. He doesn't walk me down the aisle on my wedding day. Mm. A heavenly father isn't there when all my kids are born. We know he's there, but the physical presence of a father to celebrate grandbabies. God is enough, but that's not how he designed it to be. So when there's a void, there is a loss, and that's okay. You can say that. When there's a void, there's a loss. Admitting loss doesn't diminish who God is or who he is in a person's life. It actually speaks to what his original design was meant to be.
1: Wow, that is powerful because I think it's so easy to try to encourage people with statements like, at least you have a Heavenly Father, and not realizing that there's such loss there that that's not really comfort. It is true, right? But it's distorted because of all those things that a physical father didn't do for you, right?
0: Yeah, it kind of keeps you back in a place of not growing and moving forward because you're trying to go, I should be okay. When it's okay not to be okay, but you need to not stay there.
1: The truth is that God is enough, and he did actually, in hindsight, put some men in your life who played key fatherly roles for you it wasn't your biological dad, it wasn't your earthly dad, but God did provide in areas that maybe a father would provide, right?
0: Absolutely. And this goes back to good choices that my mom made to keep me in church around community, God's people. And so the men of God came in and around me and actually provided me with a perfect dad because I had the best parts of of a lot of men who were speaking in over my life. When I'm in elementary school, I had a young man. Uh, he wasn't a young man. Um, he probably was a young man. I thought he was old, but <laughs> he took me to the fair, the Arkansas State Fair, and just invested in my life in different ways and showed me to have a good time and appreciate me as a girl appropriately. Mm-hmm. In my teenage years, I had a, a man, Richard Grzesinski, who was really a special dad to me who came alongside of me. I lived with he and his wife for several years and just really showed me what it was like to have a dad who was a protector. Yeah. Then I got to have a crazy dad who told crazy dad jo- jokes that were really embarrassing. And he's been in my life and still is Raymond Johnson. Yeah. He is a hoot and he has really played a role in just loving me affectionately, appropriate affection, but just really being the goofy dad that's always there and has really been there for, he calls them grandkids, but they're our kids um, in their life. So yeah, God, God showed up and I love it.
1: So what was the
0: lie? So the lie is identity is a destination that you actually, some point in your life, come to the magical place that you know everything about yourself and it's a destination to arrive to. As soon as you think that you're all that, that you've got it all figured out, you need to know you have a problem. You will never fully arrive to maturity of who you are, your identity. I know I will always be growing in this area. Human existence is a process. There's a spiritual growth that happens, emotional growth, intellectual growth still continues, um, relational growth. So when you think you've arrived, you've actually stopped growing. Everyone around you knows you've stopped growing. They all see it. You just keep believing that you, you have arrived. I know my whole life as a wife, as a mom, as a daughter, sister, leader, and friend, identity will always be a work of art. There will always be some things that I may have tendencies toward that I need to work on, but I want to constantly grow. I will constantly, continually be challenged with who I am and whose I am because of my life story.
1: There was so much good stuff in there. And really, that's the point of the Live, Lead, Last podcast is self-awareness and self-growth is a lifelong journey. You never graduate from the school of self-learning. So when you feel like you've arrived, you've actually stagnated or you stopped your growth.
0: You know, one of the things that just dawned on me, a motivator for me, I want to spiritually, emotionally, intellectually stay ahead of my kids. Mm. I don't want them to have to lead me in those areas. I will learn things from them because they're amazing kids, but I want to stay ahead of them. And so to do that, it motivates me to go, I've got to keep growing.
1: That's so good. There's a passage in the Old Testament of the Bible that has become very real to you. Can you share it with us? I think it would be really encouraging for many of our listeners today.
0: It is found in Isaiah 41. God's word has always been something that's helped me, encourage me, and give me strength, and has spoken into who I am. And this I feel like has been a special verse that lets me know God's with me on this whole journey. And it says, I've picked you. I have not dropped you. Don't panic. I'm with you. I'll give you strength. I will help you. I will hold you steady. I have a firm grip on you. And I feel like when I read that, I'm reading exactly what God is speaking over me. The truth is God has always had his eye on me, even in the secret place. I have had purpose. I add value to others. I'm not alone. Even when humans abandon, I'm not abandoned. I actually know that to be true. Sometimes I have to remind myself or you have to remind me, but I actually know that to be truth, even though I may feel differently. Being alone in a situation, in a circumstance, some of our listeners may be single. They may be isolated or they're, they're awkward and they don't socially connect. They have maybe a disease or there's an injustice that's come against them that makes them feel alone. I just want to encourage you, you are never alone. The biggest, hardest lesson of all of this so far for me is loneliness is a place of growth and strength. I used to think loneliness was negative and sometimes it is. But the truth is, if you have a perspective, that that's where actual growth and strength happens. It's a paradigm shift. It's really where I got real with myself. Wow.
1: Well, thank you, Lisa, for sharing your story. Uh, listeners want to follow your journey. Where would you send them to connect with you online?
0: They can follow me on Instagram and Facebook at, at Lisa Duval.
1: So seeing this podcast is new. It really would mean so much to us if you would help us get the word out by sharing the podcast and telling your friends and family about it. Maybe share this episode with them.
0: You can also follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Live Lead Last Podcast. And if you would take time to subscribe, rate, review the podcast, we would be so thankful. It'll help us spread the word about the show.
1: So next week, author and speaker and a good friend of ours, Lance Witt, will be with us. So we want to invite you back for that. But before we go, we want to make sure that you know that Anchor has this really cool feature that allows you as listeners to be a part of our future podcast episodes. If you download the Anchor app, you can actually send us voice messages with your comments, or questions that we can work in the future podcast. There's also a link in the show notes that you can use as well.
0: And remember, the way you live your life and leverage your influence today will determine the legacy you leave tomorrow. So until next week,